Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. The news has become so predictable lately that I'm enjoying the commercials more than the news. <laughs> I used to live in Seattle where some of that news originates from. <laughs> to turn that on at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night and find out, you know, this has happened, that's happened. It's the same story every day, just different people. And uh, so it's, it's, it's so refreshing to me for a commercial to say, I have good news. You know, the guy's sitting in his jail cell and he's talking to his lawyer. And the lawyer gets on his phone for an important call and he hangs it up and he goes, man, I got good news. And the guy says, hey, you're getting me out of here? No, I just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance. I go, yes, love that. I have good news for you today. I'm so excited to share it with you, starting in John 8. The good news starts with the promises of Christ. I want to look at the very words of Christ today and at what He said He wants to do for you, because that is what the good news, or the fancy word that we use is the word gospel, the good news of Christ. In John chapter 8, we read this, starting in verse 1. But Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning He came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, and here's the good news, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The greatest good news that Jesus brings to us is very simply this. Jesus wants to bring us the forgiveness of sins. According to the Old Testament law, like these scribes and Pharisees said, according to that law, she should be stoned. Of course, they left out a little part, didn't they? Who else should have been stoned? Why didn't they drag him along? Apparently, from the end of the story, we find out they didn't drag him along because they were also adulterers. And yet somehow, in their twisted sinful thinking, their religious sinful thinking, they came to think that an adulterous woman was worse than an adulterous man. We have here a marvelous example of forgiveness. And don't miss this very simple truth as we think about forgiveness first. 
we have all been caught in the very act of sin by God. It's interesting that God gives us a very explicit text here when he says that these, these religious people who were, their motive, if you don't understand the story, their motive was to get Jesus to make a mistake in what he was saying and doing so they could publicly say, see, we told you he's a sinner. So they're not trying to find the truth or trying to help this woman. They're just trying to get rid of Jesus. And they, they found a woman in the act of committing adultery. Now, I don't know how they did that unless this was a put-up deal. And they bring her in the... They, they, they grab her out of the bedroom and bring her and set her in front of Jesus. And they go, okay, Jesus, are we going to stone her or not? But friends, if you have any understanding of God at all, you know that God has caught you in the very act of sin. In fact, if you know anything about God at all, you know that every time you sin, He sees you. There is no hiding from God. The Bible says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. When I lived in South Seattle, that was very true. If I wanted to ride with the police as a chaplain and see police activity, I would wait till night when the criminals came out. Why do they do that? I mean, why don't they just commit crimes in the broad daylight? God says it's because they, their deeds are evil and they know it. Folks, we have been caught in the very act of sin by God. But you know what this, what this text tells us? God doesn't care how many stupid, selfish, hurtful, harmful things you have done. His offer of forgiveness is as broad and deep as your sin. You cannot out-sin the forgiveness of God. You can't outdo it. You can't get to a point where you could say, oh, I'm beyond help. Those folks who want to be beyond help are just that. They don't want God's help. They don't, they don't want to have to come to Christ. But there is no place you can go. I mean... Humanly speaking, other than murder or rape, do we, do we think of anything much worse than this? And we're going to look at somebody who might have been guilty of that in a minute. Listen to these great words from John 5, 24. Jesus said, He who believes in me will not come into judgment. He who believes in me will not come into judgment. So the example of forgiveness... Is, is, is huge, it's extensive. And then the definition of forgiveness. Jesus said very simply, He said, where are those who condemn you? And she said, they're gone. And He said, neither do I condemn you. You need to understand that God is not going to forget your sin. But what He is going to do is He is going to take your sin and move it far away from you. In fact, the Scripture says, He's going to move it as far away from you as the east is from the west. Which means God is going to stop holding your sin against you. That's also God's definition of forgiveness for us, by the way. If you forgive somebody, it's when you stop holding things against them. God stops holding things against you. This woman was guilty of sin. Jesus said, I'm not going to hold it against you. I will forgive you. Look at the offer of forgiveness here. And this is so important. 
Christ did not offer forgiveness to a perfect person. She was offered forgiveness right in the middle of sin. John 3.17 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We don't need to clean ourselves up before coming to God. That's redundant if it was possible. We come to God so He can clean us up, so He can take away our sin. You don't need to wait to come to God until you have something to offer Him. You don't have anything to offer God. I don't have anything to offer God. Whatever we are is what God makes of us. Then look at the response to forgiveness. Look what Jesus commands her. And this is important in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, God doesn't offer us forgiveness so we can feel good about sinning. There is a very large, well-known church that at least a number of years ago would allow you to sin and come and pay a fee and have the sin removed. You could go and do it again, pay a fee and do it again, and pay a fee and do it again. It's called buying indulgences. Hey, folks, that is not how God forgives. If you come to God and say, God, would you please forgive? He will freely wipe it away. But He says, now look, if you mean this, you are going to go and sin no more. Now, does that mean you're going to be perfect? No, because, you know, if, if I'm the preacher and I'm standing here, I'm telling you Christians are not perfect, and I'm a prime example of that. But it means... You know, that's really dangerous to do before you eat dinner at my house. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make sure that end of the pork roast doesn't get cooked all the way. That's what I'm going to do. Hey. Yeah. He knows my imperfections. He had to try to remove them. Uh, God does not expect you to become perfect once you are forgiven. But if you are truly forgiven, there will be a change in your life and you will be so thankful to God and so grateful for being forgiven that you will say, God, help me to sin no more. And of course, the ability to sin no more comes from the second thing that God wants to give us. And, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm looking at several of the promises of Christ. They're not, they're not in a particular order, and they are not in the order that God gave us. They're just things that Christ promised. Look with me at John 14. When we think about this, the Christian life, I have known people who said, well, I, I don't know if I can become a Christian because I can't live good enough. Well, you know what? You're right. You can't. But look what God wants to do to help us. The second blessing God wants to give us in this, in the second promise that Christ makes to us is the promise of the Holy Spirit, the power from God. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. And that literally reads in the Greek, another helper like me, somebody like me. And he's clearly trying to say this helper will be divine. It will be God in another person. 
He will help you, the helper, that he may abide with you forever. And here's his name, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. God says, look, I want to send the Holy Spirit to be in you, to be your helper. I don't know about you, but I need help in life. I need help to get along with my wife. Nice as she is, I know the only reason you keep me around here is to get her. Sometimes she's a little tough to get along with. And sometimes I'm a little tough to get along with. And sometimes you're a little tough to get along with. We need power. And and Christ knew that. Christ knew that while He was here on earth and He was daily teaching His his disciples and, and, and the men who became apostles and all of the other disciples... He knew that He was here helping them and strengthening them and teaching them. He says, when I go, I'm going to send somebody else because you're going to need power. Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When do you get the Holy Spirit? You get the Holy Spirit when you accept Christ as your Savior. And what is the first power that He gives to us? Back up in John 14 to verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do... He will do also, and greater works than these He will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. When you come to Christ and He forgives your sin, He puts the Holy Spirit in, and one of the first blessings you receive from that is the ability to pray, the ability to talk to God. Hebrews 10, verse 19 says, we can come boldly to the throne of God. Before you know Christ, you you may pray, but you think nothing's happening. When you come to Christ, you have the ability to talk to God face to face. What a wonderful blessing is ours in the power of prayer. Then we have also the power of discernment, I've called it, in verses 15 through 17 that we already read, when he calls the Holy Spirit, verse 17, the Spirit of truth look at chapter 16 of john and verse 13 however when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but ever whatever he hears from god he will speak and he will tell you things to come if ever there was an age when we needed the spirit of truth it's today well, you stand in line at the grocery stand and there's, there's a dozen magazines all telling you how to, how to carry out your married life. And then there's another three or four telling you how not to. Those are the ones telling you about the Hollywood marriages. You need truth. You need guidance. And you get up in the morning and you have to make decisions. How do you do that? God says, I want to send you the spirit of truth. Part of this this discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us, according to 1 Corinthians 2, is the ability to understand the Bible. God tells us that the Bible is not not a truth that is mentally or intellectually understood. Yes, we have to read it and it has to go into our mind, but He tells us that it is spiritually understood. You cannot understand the Word of God without the Spirit of God. And so He gives us the Spirit to open the Word to us, to guide us in our daily life. 
And then if we look down to verse 23 of John 14, we find another wonderful blessing from the Holy Spirit, and that is the power of peace. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, I will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. He's talking about himself and the Holy Spirit. Then drop down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance those things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. God wants to send the Holy Spirit to bring peace to your life. Is there peace in your heart today? If there is not peace, it is not because of the circumstances of your life. It is not because of the experiences of your life. It's because you don't have the ability to deal with those circumstances and experiences through the Spirit of God. See, Jesus said, I don't want to give you peace like the world gives. Do you know what the peace of the world is? That's when all of the problems stop. That's when you go to work tomorrow and you get there at 8.15 instead of 8 o'clock and the boss says, man, it's so good to see you. I don't care what time you come in. (laughs) And you're going about your day and it gets to be 9.45 and the coffee break is at 10 and you think, man, I'm just going to go early. And so you go and get your coffee and there's the boss and he says, man, you, you are such a good worker. I don't care what time you take a coffee break. I don't care how long you're gone. You're thinking, wow, this is pretty good, you know? And that's likely to happen, isn't it? Yeah, when when donkeys fly. <laughs> and you go to get your paycheck at the end of the two weeks, and you, and you skipped a couple days because, you know, the, uh, the NCAA playoffs were on, and you, you had to watch the games. You had to watch the games. So you skipped a couple of days. You know what? Your paycheck was full, complete. The boss said, you know what? I know how important those basketball games are. You just don't worry about it. And then you went home. And your wife said, honey, you just keep that paycheck. I don't need one stinking dime. You are such a great husband. Man, it is such a privilege to be married to you. I don't want nothing from you. I'm going to go out and get two jobs so you can spend all the money you make. And then you went to the grocery store and you bought a lottery ticket and you won a million bucks. Now, you know what? That's really not likely to happen, is it? What's likely to happen is you're going to get to work at 8.15. Your boss is going to chew on you. You know what Jesus said? He wants to give you peace, not like the world. Anybody can be happy when things are going good. What's the miracle? No miracle. You don't need God when things are going good. You should be praising God when things are going good, but you don't, you don't perceive the need of God. Jesus says, I want to give you peace unlike the worldly peace, which is peace in the midst of difficulty. It's peace when your wife is lying in a coma for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's peace when your kid comes home from school and he says, man, I, I let this kid have it today. It's peace when you go to work and not only are you late, but you're fired. Do you have peace in your heart? Because if you don't have peace, there's only one reason. It's because you're not connecting with God 
like He intends. Look what He said. I want to give you peace. If you're not at peace, it's not His fault. Because He is ready to give it to you. The last part of the blessing of the Holy Spirit that I want to share with you comes from John 7 when Jesus said this, If anybody is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this He spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in Him would receive. I've called this the the power of inner strength. could call it the power of the abundant life. It could give it a lot of names. But Jesus said, look, when you come and, and put your faith in Me and I take your sins away and I put the Holy Spirit in you, there's going to be a fundamental change in your life to where the, the source of your life and the power of your life will come from within. All around us today, people are saying, look, you've got the ability. Just dig down deep in your soul. It's there. You can do it. The power of the human spirit. And we look and we dig down deep and we come up with a dry well, not a fountain. It's so great when genuine godliness gets a little press, like we've seen this last week with this woman in Georgia who has taken hostage by a guy who we know is a murderer and a thief. We don't know if he's a rapist. He wasn't convicted of that. But he's killed several people, including his captors, killed another guy and took his truck. And now he's taken this woman hostage at gunpoint. And what does she do? She says, would it be okay if I read something? Now, you've got to stop and say, wait a minute. She has all kinds of opportunities here. What is she going to read? She's going to read The Purpose Driven Life. She's going to read a Christian book that she has already been reading because she got it out and read today's part that she was reading as she was working through it. And not only did she read it, but she read it out loud to a murderer and a thief who's holding her at gunpoint while she's tied up. If that's not inner strength, I don't know what is. And I know that it's the work of God because as she shared with him from God's truth, He came to a degree of peace, put down his gun, let her go, surrendered peacefully. Now, I'm not under the illusion that he became a Christian. I have no way of knowing. But you know what's really interesting, folks? And take note of this. If you read all of the stories about that lady and you read between the lines very carefully, you'll understand that she is just at a place of getting her life together. This is not... This is not the wife of Billy Graham. This is, this is the woman from John 8, or maybe a little better, who has come to the Lord and is trying to find the godly way. And it shows the power of the Holy Spirit because she doesn't have any personal strength. It's God welling up inside of her. And I would ask you today, do you have that fountain coming up inside that's what christ promises us in john 10 10 he calls it the abundant life i have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly wow what a great promise is ours from christ he wants to forgive us 
He wants to give us power. And then, turn with me back to John 14, verse 1. He wants to give us eternal life. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, or probably better translated, designated places, or apartments, or compartments, special places. In My Father's house are many places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a special place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I just want to say three things about eternal life today. And the first is this. Eternal life is a real existence. And I would offer the simplest of understanding from all of us who have been to the funerals of our friends and we say, He's not there. That's His body. And Jesus says, You know, you're absolutely right. You have the opportunity to go to heaven at the instant of your death. Eternity is a real existence. Secondly, eternal life is a reserved existence. When we were in Spain, we, I told the missionaries, I said, the one thing, the touristy thing that I want to do in, not Spain, in Italy, excuse me, the one touristy thing I want to do in Italy is I want to eat in an Italian restaurant. I want to say that I ate Italian food in an Italian restaurant. And the basic report is Olive Garden's got them beat. So I just want you to know that. <laughs> First of all, they don't speak English, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, so we, we find this restaurant. We get there. You know, we're Americans, so we get there at 6 o'clock or 6.30. And we say, you know, and my missionary friends speak Spanish. They don't speak Italian. And the owner doesn't speak English, and so after a while, we discovered he spoke Spanish. So they talked Spanish to him. We said, you know, can we, uh, can we come in and eat? The whole place is empty. And he's trying to tell us something, and we thought he was saying we have to have a reservation, and we're, we're kind of like going, it's empty. You know, there's nobody here. Are you open? Yeah, we're open. But, you know, what he was telling us is you only got two hours, and then somebody else is coming into this table. So I thought, well, two hours should do it for us. Uh, Eternal life is a reserved existence. We did not have a reservation. Thankfully, we were able to get in. When you come to the end of your life, if you haven't made your reservation for heaven, there won't be one of those places prepared for you. Now, that sounds kind of like bad news. And I told you I was going to give you good news today. But you know what? The good news is Jesus says, I'm going. I'm, I'm building some places and in heaven, there's no building code, so there's no limit on density. And he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You can have a place in heaven. That's the wonderful truth there. He says, look, I'm going to prepare a place. And when the time is right, I will come and receive you and you will be with me forever. Eternal life is a reserved existence. We're going to talk more about that later. You need to make a reservation. Thirdly, eternal life is a certain 
existence, a certain existence. It is a definite existence. You know, he says to the, to the disciples who became the apostles, you know. John 3.16, the verse that almost everybody in the world knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him might not perish. Should not perish. Would not perish. Will not perish. God doesn't make a, a tentative offer. It's not like when you're buying a house and you kind of want to lowball them, you know. No, he says, look, here's the deal. You believe in Christ, you got a guaranteed deal. It's a certain existence. Christ has made some great promises. Forgiveness, power, eternity. But the question we also need to ask on Easter is this. What about the proof? So he makes some great promises. Can he deliver? Well, I would offer two, uh, a couple of proofs for you today. And the first would start with this, the perfection of Christ's qualification to be the Savior. There are at least 40 specific prophecies written in the Old Testament before Christ was born, which said when the Savior comes, this is what must be true of him. At least 40, and certainly many more references to Christ throughout the Old Testament. But what we find is that Christ fulfilled every one of those qualifications. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there have been many Jewish people over the years who claim to be the Messiah. There were some before Christ, and there have been some since Christ. Some of them personally claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, and some of them others sort of pushed them into the Messiah position and said, this person is. The most current, the most recent is, is a, a fellow named Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And uh, uh, he, he never personally claimed to be the Messiah, but he never told people stop saying that when they claimed he was going to be the Messiah. Wherever you go in Jerusalem these days, this is written by a Jewish Christian who lives in Jerusalem. Wherever you go in Jerusalem these days, you see many pictures of the late, as in dead, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of New York City, who led the Lubavitch movement of Hasidic or ultra-Orthodox, that's the Jews with the curls and the hats and the beards and so on, who led the, the Hasidic Jew, movement of Judaism for 44 years. In 1992, at age 90, the rabbi a stroke that rendered him speechless for the rest of his life. He died two years later, and his grave is in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. Now, ten years later, we see his face everywhere in Jerusalem, in the newspapers, on television, and on posters in the streets. His followers dance and rejoice over him. Why? Because they say he is the Messiah. Or that's, that's the Hebrew word for Savior. They call him Melech HaMashiach, King Messiah. And they place Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 with his picture. Quote, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Recently I came across a group of Schneerson's followers. They were having a big celebration and telling people, the Messiah has come. So I began to talk with them. Why do you come here? One asked me. Here we are so happy and celebrating this great day of joy because our Messiah has come. And you come here to take us from this great joy from us. Just then their rabbi arrived. He was full of dissatisfaction. You must be happy with us, he told me. 
I said, I will be happy with you, but only if you show me where it is written that this Messiah you are so happy about came and saved you from all your sins. Can you show me? He pointed to Isaiah 53. I too believe what is written here, I told him, but I do not believe in Rabbi Schneerson, who was so helpless and sick and is now buried in New York. If you will show me Rabbi Schneerson's name in the Bible and that the Messiah came from New York to save us, I too will rejoice with you. Let's skip part of the article. One of them then thought hard about what we were saying and spoke up. You know, many of those Christians we encounter believe in this man, Jesus. Can you show me where it is written about this one, if it is in the Bible? If it is, we want to see it. You believe in this man who was born in Bethlehem. When he said this, he did not even know that the Bible says the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Rabbi Schneerson was born in the Ukraine and never even came to Israel. So I quickly turned to Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 7.14, and they were utterly shocked. Here it is written about the true Messiah, I said. Sadly, they did not want to speak with me anymore. Even the simplest fact that he had to be born in Bethlehem, and they're ignorant of that. Folks, there were multiple predictions about the person of Christ, the Savior to come, and Jesus of Nazareth filled them all. Nobody was able to come to him and say, you didn't do it, you didn't fulfill it. Not one. What about the clarity of his personal claim? Turn with me to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, Jesus personally made a claim that was utterly fantastic. It was so fantastic that his enemies remembered it when the day came. Matthew 12:38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, the same people who were bringing the adulterous woman to Jesus, said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and, <clears throat> and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, look, I'm going to give you one more miracle. They were coming to him basically saying, oh, show us a miracle and we'll believe. He said, I'm going to give you one more miracle, and it's what we now call the miracle of the resurrection. And those folks remembered what he said. Do you know why? Because when he died, the, the, the enemies came to Pilate and said, give us a guard, a Roman detachment of guards, so that we can make sure his followers don't steal the body and say he has risen. So Jesus very clearly claimed that he would show them a miraculous sign. Now, we come to the, to the, to the end of his life, his death on the cross, so, so, so marvelously depicted by Mel Gibson last year, and I think very biblically accurate. Then his death and his resurrection. And what is the great proof of his resurrection? There are numbers of them. One is the empty grave. But here's the proof I would offer. Where were the apostles when they began to preach that Jesus had been raised from the dead? Where was Peter when 50 days after the death of Christ, he stood up and said, Hey folks, <clears throat> you see these miracles happening? That is because of the man Jesus who you crucified, but God raised him from the dead. 
Now, how far was Peter from the place where Jesus was buried? From the place where the scribes and the Pharisees hired the Roman guard to guard the tomb? A short walk. If I was one of those scribes and Pharisees and I heard that, I'd go, well, I'm going to show you. Look at that. The tomb is still sealed. But you know what? They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because it was empty. They were absolutely silent because they knew he had risen from the dead. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead was the, the final stamp in which God said, yes, he is my son. The other proof that I would offer to you today is the growth of the church. Why would Peter and John be persecuted, be beat, be tossed out of town? Why would Stephen preach Christ and then stand and let the stones fly and die for a lie? Why would he do that? Where's the glory? What was the purpose in that? There is none. In the midst of tremendous persecution for the first 300 years of the existence of the church, the church flourished and moved and has continued to move all over the world. There are many, many churches, even in places like Ghana and Togo, where I was, and not just churches started by our folks over there, many churches. In the refugee camp, in the Budamburam refugee camp in Accra, Ghana, there's churches all over the place. How does that happen? Why do people in refugee camps believe in God? There can only be one reason. It's because he's real. And because he changes their lives as a result of the power shown in the resurrection. Well, what is the passion of the Christ? We've heard that attached to a movie. The, word, the, the, the phrase, the passion of the Christ, is most probably, is most usually used in relation to the events of leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, in which he, he had such passion for us that he went through those terrible events. I want to tell you what the passion of Christ is today, folks. It's found in verses like Matthew 23, 37, when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing. What is the passion of the Christ? The passion of the Christ is for him to know you, for you to be reconciled to God through him, for him to come into your life and to make it everything that it can be in him. The passion of the Christ is not to condemn you. God did not send him here to condemn you, but to bring you to himself. The passion of the Christ is seen in his desire for mankind. 1 Timothy 2.4 God does not want anyone to go to hell. That is God's desire. Now, God is going to allow people to choose between Christ and their own way. And so some people are going to choose the wrong way. And some people are going to go to hell. But it is not because of a lack of love on the part of Christ. The passion of Christ is seen in his desire for mankind. It's also seen in his offer of salvation. Turn with me to Luke 23. I want to look at another great sinner. Another great sinner who came to Christ. Luke 23 and verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged 
as in there were two, at least two criminals hanged with Jesus or crucified with Jesus. We don't know if there were more than that, but there were at least two that were close to him. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him or spoke evil of him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other criminal answering rebuked the first criminal, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? He's going, Man... I'm even smart enough that at this hour of my life, I'm not going to mess with God. I mean, even a criminal can be taught something. That's what he's saying. Verse uh, 41, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We've got this coming. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. There's an old story about a guy who loved golf. He thought, man, is there golf in heaven? And, uh, boy, he, he worried about that. And one day, he had a vision. And St. Peter was there, and he says, Hey, Bob, I got good news for you. There's golf in heaven. And I got a tea time for you today at 2 o'clock. You see what Jesus said to this guy? Today! Today you will be with me in paradise. I bet he was thinking, oh, thank God! The last minute I got ready. The offer of Christ is gracious. Jesus could have looked over at that guy and said, You waited too long. You bad. That's what you'd do. I I heard reports, I have not personally talked to the man who talked to Ted Bundy, but I heard reports that it's possible Ted Bundy, the serial murderer, accepted Christ before he died. And I've heard people talk about that saying, that's not right! And you know what? It's not fair. But you know that's the good news from Christ, is God isn't fair, He is gracious. Because if God was fair to you, (laughs) would you be so good that you would surely get an opportunity to go to heaven? I don't think any of us are that good. The offer is gracious. The thief on the cross at, at 11 hours and 59 minutes of his life, he says, today you can be with me. You see... Did he make a a public repentant confession of Christ? Well, he really did when he said, this man has done no wrong. He he recognized Jesus for who he was, and he appealed to him in the best way that he could. And friend, I want to tell you today, it's not so much about saying the right words as it is having the right heart before God. You need to say, this man has done no wrong. This man is the Son of God. I am a sinner. I need him. The offer of Christ is gracious. Secondly, the offer of Christ is genuine. John 6, 37. He who comes to me, I will in no means cast out. God says, look, I want to save you. I don't want to condemn you. Thirdly, the offer of Christ is exclusive. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We look at that as hard news. Let's turn it around and say, I am the way, the truth, the life. Any man can come to the Father through me. There are a lot of folks who who would like us 
to believe that you can come to Christ, or you can come to God and go to heaven through many different paths. All these different paths leading to one destination. You want to be a Buddhist? You want to be, uh, want to be a Mormon? You want to be, you know, you name it, we're all going to the same place. I would just ask you one question about that. Why would God go to the trouble of sending his son and putting him through hell on earth and making him die and stay in a grave for three days? Why would God put him through that if there were multiple paths to heaven? That just doesn't make sense. Now, there is only one path to heaven because there is only one Savior. Last year, a friend of mine called and wanted to know if I knew of anyone who could use a, a Christmas basket. And uh, this friend worked for a, for a, at a place where the employees get together and really do it upright. They, they try to find people who have a genuine need. And so he called me up and I said, yeah, I know a family. And uh, so he put that in motion. And a month or two later, whenever it was toward Christmas, I asked my recipient friends, I said, hey, did you get a gift from this place? Well, what are you talking about? And I said, uh, you know, I explained X, Y, Z. Oh, you know, when they called, I didn't know what that was about or who they were. I said, no, thanks. Oh, I thought, oh, Lord. So I called my first friend back and I said, hey, you know, these people didn't understand and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and the Lord had providentially worked it out so there was just one slot left at the, at the 11th hour and they were able to be blessed by this wonderful gift. Wouldn't it be a shame if you went out of here today and said, you know, no thanks. You'd be missing the greatest Christmas basket you have ever seen. God gives us all of these blessings. And he asks us to receive them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great blessings that you have given to us in the person of Christ. Oh, we're so grateful. You've done so much. Help us not to foolishly reject your offer of salvation today. Father, if there's somebody here today who has never, never received these wonderful blessings that you want to give, open their eyes right now. Open their heart to see this great gift. And through your Holy Spirit, cause them to put their faith in you. Father, if there are believers here today who are not experiencing the forgiveness and the power and the wonder and joy of eternal life, if somehow they are missing those blessings because of burdens and sin and problems in their life, Father, open their eyes to see what you want to do today. Don't let this Easter just be a wonderful day with some new clothes and a nice breakfast. Do your work in our hearts. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our hymn books, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us together today. Work in hearts. Don't let your word be void. You said it won't be. You said it will come home bearing.
precious fruit, precious seed. I, I just pray that you will make that happen today. Thank you for the fellowship of new friends and old. Bless us as we encourage each other. Take us safely home and bring us together again later this week. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.